invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther. Old Testament book of Esther is just about smack dab in the middle of your Bible before the book of Psalms. We're starting a, a series where we'll discuss sections of the book of Esther in Anchored Youth, and I thought it would be an excellent thing on some of the evening messages to preach from Esther as well. And I'll read all of chapter 1 as we orient ourselves to this wonderful story of God's work in the world. Esther 1, verses 1 to 22. This is God's holy word. Let's give our attention to it. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles, the governors of the provinces, were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains, violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels on diff- of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. There is, and drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs of who served the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen, uh, Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command and delivered, uh, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this is the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Mamukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and saw first in the, sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mukan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look on their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who've heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him. Let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed through all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin promised. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be the master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's ask for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask now that uh, you would speak. Holy Spirit, you revealed these words, and we honor you as the one who authoritatively uh, addresses your church tonight. And Lord, would you please open up our hearts to see wonderful things from your word, and most of all, show us the glory of Jesus, that we would be changed and reoriented toward how we read your hand in the kingdom extension that you are doing, Lord. Would you help us to see what is so hard to see with natural eyes? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the reading of a long chapter of the book of Esther, you may be wondering, this is a strange text to preach. And uh, I will guarantee to you that those who were Jewish people living through these events thought precisely the same thing. Why uh, the book of Esther in this season. Um, well, as a people who are scattered throughout the kingdom of Medo-Persia, we share many things in common as believers with these people who would have experienced the events of the book of Esther. We too are pilgrims and exiles, wondering in some sense, longing for home and not yet there yet. And based on the opening of the book of Esther, as we'll see, the, the promises of God's royal rule of the one, of sending one who would always rule on the throne of King David seem to have failed as this king will assert his pomp and his glory and his victory. And yet a small little band spread through all the kingdom will be the means by which God works through his conquering uh, royal queen in this book to overcome those enemies, uh, to conquer those enemies. And God calls us to also in the world uh, fight and do battle as part of his church. Uh, a beautiful metaphor for the war that we are in uh, comes from the Star Wars series, which I got to catch up on a little bit recently. Uh, spent some time ill and got to, to watch a little bit of more TV than I ever would, which is always uh, a relief in some sense. Um, if you're a Star Wars fan, the Rebel Alliance, the New Republic, battles against the forces of evil and often seems to be completely overcome. And as I was thinking about casting a vision for Anchored Youth this year, I wanted to see, I wanted all of us, our high schoolers to see, and all of us as Christians to see that we are part of God's mission in the world. God is accomplishing things through his church and through us as we fight the forces of evil and through things that will seem very ordinary like prayer and discipling through praying uh, and getting to know each other this year in anchored youth god is going to do awesome kingdom shattering things uh, i was struck by this particular 
image because I was filling up my uh, tank of gas at Meyer gas station recently, and a young man had the, uh, the Starbird, I think it's called, uh, the Rebel Alliance insignia on his arm. And I was thinking to myself, why would someone tattoo something like this on their arm? So committed to the story of Star Wars, to being on the right side in some sense in Star Wars, is this person, that they're going to mark their bodies the rest of their life. And maybe you're a Star Wars fan and you think, well, this is obvious. Of course we should get tattooed uh, with this. But I was thinking to myself, as Christians, are we all in like this? I mean, are we so uh, dedicated and excited about what God is doing in his kingdom that we say, I want to be shaped and oriented by being on this rebel alliance side of thing, pushing back against the forces of the dark and evil empire? Do we see God's purposes in the world even when they're hidden? Will we fight and resist against Satan and his empire. The temptation, as we'll see in the book of Esther, particularly with, with Esther herself and then uh, into the future, is to blend. It's to say, it seems like uh, the world is so strong and its power and influence is so mighty that I'm going to shrink back from who I am and my identity as a Christian. And I want us to call us this evening not to pull back even when it seems like God's purposes in the world are failing. So let's open up as we consider this passage, as we see a show of force. First, a show of force, wealth, and glory. So first point, a show of force, wealth, and glory. If you didn't notice that Ahasuerus wants to show off his awesome glory and might and power, the book of Esther drives that home to us. Uh, he's described as the, the ruler of 127 provinces. They range all the way from India to Ethiopia. Uh, he is, in some sense, the emperor of all the known world. Imagine if you're an, an Israelite, you're a Jewish person listening to this description. You just feel dwarfed by the massive reign of this king of the nation that has conquered the whole world. And you feel small because of this. And if you don't uh, see his massive kingdom strongly enough, he throws a huge uh, feast for all of his officials. And this was a very military thing to do when you were a conquering emperor in the, the ancient world. You would throw a massive feast. This feast lasts 180 days. It's half of a year. And imagine just day after day feasting and feasting and feasting. And it's a way for the king to tell those who have conquered with him, thank you for being on the winning side. You have conquered with me, and now I pull you into my royal retinue, and you are these honored people because of all the glory that we have accomplished together. And so there's this prolonged, massive feast that the king Ahasuerus throws. Uh, but he doesn't want to just throw a, a massive feast for the people who are in elevated positions, people who are uh, ruling and conquering and princes and rulers notice. But it goes on to say, verses 5 and following, that the king wants to throw a feast for people of every sort. It says people who are small and great in the citadel of Susa. Susa was a military fortress in the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And again, imagine you are a Jewish person, you're watching this happen, and for seven days, you watch this pompous, uh, proud person showing off his wealth in just extravagant ways. He wants everybody to see the pomp of the glory of his kingdom. Notice all the details that are recorded. The cotton curtains 
are white. The hangings which are tied with cords of fine linen are the most lavish color you could have in that time, violet. Decoratings uh, are silver and marble pillars. Uh, You and I may go out and buy furniture that's somewhat um, practical and may last a long time. This guy had um, uh, couches that were silver and gold. And even the floor is a decoration. Porphyry and marble and mother of pearl. The goblets are all unique. It's just a remarkable, a specific, detailed description. And what's the effect that all this has, again, on the hearer? If you're a Jewish person, you either heard about this feast or you even were invited to this feast. We're going to find out that Mordecai is one of the guests uh, in the king's palace. What effect does this have on you? Well, there's this ruler who's not your king who seems to own all of the known world, and you're intended to feel very small as you are uh, witnessing the massive, amazing pomp and splendor of his possessions and his wealth. Um, I remember as a kid crossing the border, we were raised in a pretty uh, kind of modest, poor neighborhood in Tijuana, and we would cross the border, and then we would go into southern San Diego and then cross over this bridge uh, to the island of Coronado, and Coronado has some of those most beautiful beaches in the world. And I remember looking around at these homes on the island of Coronado, these are million-dollar, multi-million-dollar homes, and thinking, wow, I have just crossed into a completely different kind of world. This is not something that I am familiar with. And then you would spend the whole day at the beach and uh, eat and enjoy time with your family and swim in the water and then get in your car and drive back over the bridge into San Diego and home and back into a very modest situation. This is certainly the experience that a Jewish person invited to this feast would have had or the hearers of this story are intended to have. Nobody is as great and glorious as a Hasuerus. And this is not just a problem of envy then that would be provoked in the hearers. This causes theological problems. There's a crisis that arises when this king is asserting this kind of rule and demonstrating his wealth and his power in this way. And it's because of where this story fits in the flow of the story of the Bible. You have to remember the promises that the Israelites had made to them. Remember that to Abraham had been promised that in him and through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that family becomes a foundation for the royal promises that would come later. You remember David conquers all of his enemies and he wants to build God a house. And in 2 Samuel, it says as he wants to build a house that God makes this promise to David. When your, your days are fulfilled, you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, and you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, your house, your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So you're a Jewish person living in Medo-Persia, invited to see the pompous, massive wealth and glory of this foreign king. And you have to ask yourself, Lord, where is the promise of your uh, son of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? I mean, are you actually in charge? Are you actually ruling? Where are you, God? And what are your purposes in the midst of this lavish display? 
This, of course, is our question also as Christians. We too serve a king who is the ruler of all nations, as we're going to see. All authority has been given in heaven and on earth to Jesus. And yet we go out into very common occupations. We live in common family homes. And often we wonder, Lord, where is the demonstration of your authority and your power? Psalm 110 had promised a ruler sitting at the Lord's right hand, conquering all his enemies as the Lord himself made all the enemies a footstool. And you can imagine, again, the Jewish hearers of this story at the beginning of Esther saying, we feel like the footstool. We feel like the one who's been conquered. We're just observers in the midst of someone else's victory. Well, I want us to see, second, the shame of one woman's disobedience. The shame of one woman's disobedience. Uh, The man who commands power and authority over all the known nations around these uh, exiled people of Israel has one little detail that he's about to to pull out uh, to demonstrate just the massive uh, awesomeness of his kingdom. Uh, But it doesn't go exactly as he had planned. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. It's an utter disaster. Notice verses 10 and 11. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the queen with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Notice again how big Ahasuerus does everything. Uh, he doesn't discreetly send a messenger quietly to his bride, to his wife, the queen. He sends seven named eunuchs to make this pronouncement that she must come. Uh, and he sets himself up, all the guests that are at this lavish second party, he sets himself up for what ends up happening. She defies this pompous, proud man. She says no. She will not come to be a puppet, to be shown around uh, in the, the, the rule of King Ahasuerus, to show off his, his might and his glory. Uh, in our culture, we may uh, struggle to understand this. Um, men and women, uh, in many good ways, are on the same level. But in that time, uh, women were not perceived to be equal. Um, the fact that she rejects Ahasuerus' request is a massive thundering thing for her to do. Uh, Queens were married uh, for alliance purposes. Nations uh, were bound together, but also as kind of trophy wives that could be used in this way. And Vashti very simply refuses the king's orders to come and be shown. It is a total mess for Ahasuerus, the one who was so sure of his glory and honor. And Ahasuerus, how does he respond? Uh, He certainly doesn't accept defeat. He sends out all of his, his uh, messengers to give him uh, advice, and they give him this strange uh, counsel. Rather than quietly and discreetly dealing with a home matter, they decide to send out an empire-wide edict, which ends up in some sense publishing the fact that uh, someone who had all the supposed authority and power can't even rule in his own home. The very opposite of what Ahasuerus is trying to do is accomplished as a law publishes the shame and embarrassment of this queen who rejects him. 
We see uh, through this act, through the, the defiance of this uh, woman, a remarkable um, aspect of God's work because through this uh, refusal, the door is open, as we'll see in the book of Esther, for Esther herself, the queen, to be introduced. And we will not see in this book any explicit reference to God's hand. In this chapter, as you notice, there's not one reference to a Jewish character. And yet God is working in hidden and secret ways. And I want us to see third, then, as we conclude this evening, hope in the hidden ways of God. Hope in the hidden ways of God. Uh, Ian Duguid is uh, one of the, uh, my favorite commentators on the book of Ruth and of Esther, and he says this, In our lives, we may well have no idea what God is doing. He may seem hidden, remote, refusing to answer our prayers. The end of our story, though, has not yet been told. Even though we cannot see God acting, it does not follow that he's not doing anything at all. And again, our problem as we read this story and oftentimes as we read our own history and interpret God's work in the world is that when God seems absent from the circumstances and the things that we would expect him to do if he was actually ruling in our life, we assume then this is his absence. He isn't actually engaged in any way. And we don't see him working through the hidden and the secret things. Martin Luther wrote in his Heidelberg Disputation, He who does not know Christ does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strengths to weakness, wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. What Luther's trying to say to us as Christians is that we would rather conquer and overcome through visible and clearly strategized things that we can effect in ourselves but we shrink back from what seems powerless, the hidden hand of God. And God in the book of Esther will shield his people over and over again. He'll protect his people. He'll prepare to conquer their enemies, even though his name is never mentioned once. And as I said, again, we know the end of how the story of God's people uh, heads to. We know that Christ is the ruling king over all things. That he says at the end of the book of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But I think by nature we would like authority, we would like God's conquering rule in this world to come directly. We'd like to see uh, immediate glorification, and yet the path to Christ's conquering all the kings of this world it's through death. It's through shame. It's through what we would never choose for ourselves. And what seemed to his disciples, what seemed to the rulers who got together to crucify Jesus, to be the greatest moment of loss and destruction for God's kingdom to be falling off the rails, becomes the very means by which God will conquer all of his enemies. Notice in the story that, again, this character who will disappear, Queen Vashti, is the one through whom God opens the door for his people to be introduced to the empire and the, the royal uh, um, palace 
with King Ahasuerus. And God always takes the initiative. God always is the one who acts in ways that we do not see uh, immediately him working. You remember in the book of Daniel, Daniel saw empires, a statue represented empires, and there were four, and uh, the middle one, uh, the shoulders were silver, made out of silver, and there was a fourth empire coming as a mountain out of the ground that would conquer all the kingdoms and shatter them. So you'd expect something drastic, something uh, impressive in this world to have affected that kind of conquering. And no one would have looked for a Messiah to come. Weak, suffering, not accomplishing in this world what seems impressive immediately. And dear people of God, this is so important for your life tonight. You're going to wake up in the middle of the night praying for your children, worried about what God is doing in their life. What providentially is God doing through and in you? You're going to uh, be called to suffer in all kinds of ways as you face um, Satan and sin and your own temptation, as God calls us to be ambassadors of the kingdom, as we share the gospel and talk to people who don't know Christ, and you're going to be tempted to say, God, I don't see you actually working now. But the very thing that seems like loss and like God has abandoned and God is not working is most certainly the time when he is actually active in this world. And so we say, as 1 Corinthians says, chapter 1, what the world looked at as foolishness, as seemingly loss, we boast in the cross and Christ crucified. See, we're going to sing right after this sermon about the glories of Jesus' reigning. With shout you rose victorious, wresting victory from the grave, ascended into heading, leading captives in your way. Now you stand before the Father, interceding for your own. From each tribe and tongue and nation, you are leading sinners home. But how did Jesus accomplish all this? How is God's kingdom active, and how did he uh, dominate and overcome? How did he attain that position of glory and splendor? Only through suffering, only through what seems on the face of it, loss and being overcome. And our salvation depends upon the glory of Jesus' crucifixion and then being promoted in resurrection to the reigning king over all. May we see then in the moments of our sufferings when we do not understand God's work in the world as we're united to Jesus, may we see him conquering all of his enemies and God most active often in the hidden things and the splendor of the work of the Holy Spirit, which we do not see on the face of it. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we um, thank you, Lord, that we are not the kings. Um, that we are not the, uh, the magistrates, that pomp and glory and excellence don't belong to us as Ahasuerus tried to establish for himself. And Lord, every king in this age that sets himself up against you will one day be destroyed, Lord. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And Lord, we fail so often to see how you could possibly do this But Lord Jesus, if you have conquered, 
all your enemies and Satan and our sin on a cross. And you're ruling now amongst, amidst your enemies and conquering and all enemies are being overcome by you, Lord. Help us to see that this is the way that the Holy Spirit will effect your kingdom and that you will work through very weak instruments, Lord, as we're united to you uh, to set your kingdom in this world and then to live in joy eternally in the world to come. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing Across the Lance. hear him bless you. Now the may, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's sing there's a higher throne.